they can learn to, if someone says something to them, you have become a safety net parent versus a helicopter parent because you've actually taught them to first, you've trained the skill in them of being observant and self-regulating and recognizing, okay, when I'm, this is something wrong, so therefore I need to stop, I need to pause, I need to actually stop whatever I'm doing until I've worked out what's going on, get some help, talk to a parent, whatever. That is a skill you can develop and that then builds resilience. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to our episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. Caroline Leaf. Dr. Leaf is a communication pathologist, audiologist, and clinical and cognitive neuroscientist specializing in psych neurobiology and metacognitive neuropsychology. Her passion is to help people see the power of the mind to change the brain, control chaotic thinking, and find mental peace. Today on the show, we discuss how to rewire toxic thoughts and how parents can support their kids when they're trying to do the same. We also get into how parents can help their kids become mentally resilient, feel more confident, build sustainable habits, develop effective problem-solving skills, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Caroline Leaf to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Leaf, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Doug. It's great seeing you again. It's great seeing you too, and I'd love to get right into it because I know that you've stated that it takes about nine weeks for people to rewire toxic thoughts in their mind and create new healthy positive ones. So if somebody's listening to this and they want to they want to do that, um, how do they get started and what does that process look like? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question because there's so much out there on how we must change and how to do it and all these great techniques and things. But in order for change to actually change the networks of your mind-brain-body connection, which we call your psychoneurobiology, that does not happen one day or five or 21 or a couple of attempts now and then. Uh, it's a very, the mind-brain-body network is a, it follows a very uh, deliberate and intentional step-by-step process that's very complex in terms of all the biochemistry and neurophysiology, but you can simplify that process and you can direct the process. And that's been the kind of substance of my work for the past 38 years is trying to find out how can you do this effectively and how long does it take for change to take place. Interestingly enough, there's not a huge amount of research in the area, which is why I'm trying to do more research. There's research, but not enough. So generally, people believe that uh, research has shown that it takes around 18 to 60, 59 to 66 days to basically change. So research shows that um, that it, if it's a simple behavior, like you just want to train yourself to make sure you go to the gym every day or something like that, get into a routine, that will take maybe around about 18 days. But to get something complex changed, like if there's an issue in your relationship or you're triggered by certain things or you're battling with um, depression related to some sort of trauma or something, that is not going to go away in a quick time. Even if you identify the root cause and you get you know do all the great stuff that there is out there, you have to stabilize that process that that new way of functioning um, over a period of time and we see that it takes minimum cycle minimum a multiple of three lots of 21 days so around about between 59 and 66 days and the more complex behavior you may need multiple of those so what i've shown and other people have also shown in their research that it can sometimes take up to 250 day 54 days plus i mean this is quite specific numbers but it's because of the very specific nature of our psycho-neurobiological network to make changes that will actually impact how we function. And so in order to do that, you need a planned and guided process that you do systematically every day for in the region of five to 45 minutes. Five minutes a day, if it's something that's kind of an irritating habit that you want to change or something that's potentially becoming a problem that's disrupting something in your life, work or relationship or just your sense of peace. That's going to be maybe in the region of somewhere around 5 to 15. If you're dealing with something that's a pretty extensive trauma, uh, maybe some sort of abuse, bullying, whatever, you know, the things that happen to us in life, racism, socioeconomic, you know, those are big words for each of us have got individual stories and all of us have got levels of trauma, then it's going to most likely take you multiple cycles. 
So for example, um, I've had some some of my clients that have had such severe sexual abuse that it's taken multiple cycles over two years, which is around about t- t- sort of 10 to 12 cycles, which is times, which is in the region of like more than 400, 500 days. And so even, and that, and the reason I'm so hot on talking about the time frame is that humans, we're pretty good at saying, I feel this. We're pretty good at talking about how we feel. It's very encouraged now. We're pretty good at meditating and breathing. I mean, this has like been, you know, it's really popular. And that's all great because that's all going to prepare your brain. But you have to go beyond just brain preparation for real change to happen. And um, what we're also seeing is that if you just do mindful awareness and meditation, you are changing your neurophysiology, but it can also make you worse if you stop there. It's a little bit like if you fly a plane, the plane takes off, but if the pilot doesn't know how to fly the plane, the plane will crash. So very often what can happen is that people get into this get into the whole um, the whole the whole becoming aware, um, mindful, naming the emotions, and then they crash, they get worse. So this is why we need to have a plan and guided and deliberate and intentional process. And that's the neurocycle that I've developed. It's not a new therapy method. It's not a new type of um, magical technique or magic bullet. In fact, it goes back to the old-fashioned thing that if you really want to change, you're going to have to work hard at it. There is just no ways around it. Because often we'll tell people, you know, you tell, tell a person, hey, you've got to work for nine weeks to sort something out. And they'll say, well, I don't have nine weeks. I don't have 15 minutes a day. You know, just kind of swap out the time that you may be spending on social media and then work di- directly on, you know, pay attention to that issue. But the big thing, Doug, I think is it's critical here is that your brain is changing moment by moment every day from the moment you're awake until the moment you're asleep. It's also changing while you're asleep because while you're asleep, there's, there's, your mind is sorting out what the, the changes that the brain has made during the day. So if you don't do anything about managing your mind in this way that I'm describing, because it's essentially mind management, essentially then you're, you're still changing, but in what direction? You know, so you can rather direct your direction of how you want to change. You can't change what's happened to you, but you can change what it looks like inside your psycho neurobiological mind brain body networks and therefore how it plays out into the future. And to do that takes these very specific cycles of time, of dedicated time that you've got to spend. I don't know if you want me to talk about the neural cycle. So any technique you use, if you don't put it in the right time frame, it's just it's not going to create sustainable change. So the actual step-by-step process is to first prepare your brain and calm it down and calm down your neurophysiology. If you have something that is like an intrusive thought that, that's coming up and it's, I'm not good enough, your intrusive thought's your best friend. Why is it your best friend? Because it's giving you information. A lot of the times we push those back down and that gets worse because those thoughts are real things. They are made of memories and they are in your brain as real proteins and structures. This is all neuroplasticity stuff. So if you're going to check, if you don't do anything with that thought that's coming up, it's going to actually go back into the unconscious mind stronger than before. And then it's going to you know, keep you stuck in that cycle and get actually getting worse, not just stuck getting worse so the first thing is to is to pay attention to it so it's to it'll make you feel a bit worked up so just do a little bit of breathing for example to some brain preparation or any kind of little little exercise and i give lots of examples breathing in for three counts and out for seven is a great way of calming down the neurophysiology if you don't it's very difficult to do the next steps so we've got to calm down first so first a little bit of brain preparation and then you go through a basic sequence. The first sequence is to identify how you're showing up around that thought. So the thought is, I'm not good enough. Okay. How does that make you feel? You're looking at four signals. So the first step is to gather awareness of these four signals that of how you are showing up as this thought is popping in your mind. So the first the first category of signals is emotions. The second is how you feel those emotions in your body. The third is how the, your behaviors. And the fourth is perspective. So let's map it out to give an example. So as I think of I'm not good enough, immediately I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling stressed. I'm feeling uh, maybe very frustrated. Um, you know, sort of looking at yourself in a negative way, make you feel horrible, sad, whatever. Then how does that feel in my body? As I as as I focus on that thought, as I feel those emotions, scan your body. And that's where maybe your heart's fluttering, your shoulders are tense. Or, and that's important because every experience that is attached to this particular thought, the thought's not just random. It's part of a network. And that network is an encapsulation of a bunch of memories of an experience that's made you feel this way. 
and it could be a bunch of different things that have co you know grouped together. So you've got this intrusive thought, it's popped up, we're now gathering awareness. And the first thing is of our emotions, which I've mentioned. The second thing is where does it feel like this in your body? Important to focus on that. This very deliberate and intentional analyzing is making the thought weaker. And when it's weaker, then you can control it. So your autonomy, your empowerment, those things are changing. That's on a psychological level. On a brain level, you physically are weakening the protein networks of the, the, the protein branches of the networks. So that's what's pretty much fantastic because otherwise neuroplasticity goes in the wrong direction. So essentially then you're going to look at then where, where you feel it in your body because every experience is embodied. And so it could be you know, heart fluttering or gut ache or whatever. And then you're going to look at how is that affecting your behaviors. In other words, what are you saying and what are you doing when that thought comes up? And it could be that you get maybe very moody or you're withdrawing or you don't speak up in a meeting because you don't have confidence in what you're saying or it's starting to really work on your self-confidence and you feel yourself withdrawing, whatever. You just start identifying the behavior. Then the fourth thing, perspective. I'm never going to be able to do this or whatever. So it's a viewpoint, life sucks or I suck. Or, so it's important that we deliberately and intentionally stand back and observe our own thinking. As we do that, we activate the frontal lobe and it becomes very active. We draw oxygen into the front. We draw increased blood flow. We have more brain waves flowing in a, in, a, in a very high frequency. And that's good because it means that neuroplastic change is happening. So all those are not uncommon things. It's the way you do it. And it's how you do it. So you don't spend, it's going to take me longer to explain this than it's going to take you to do it. So, you know, once you get the hang of this, you can do this pretty quickly. If you're in the midst of a meeting and you start feeling bad about yourself, you know, that kind of thing. So you've done that little bit of breathing. You've done the four steps. Now you go into the next step, very deliberate and say, okay, why? It's the focused reflection. I'm going to reflect on why I have those emotions. Do I have any other emotions? How often am I experiencing those emotions? What sort of what kind of um, level are they on? Are they very intense? Are they less intense? Then why, how do I always feel that in my body in this specific instance? Maybe that's the gut ache that I constantly feel. Maybe there's something. So you start exploring and digging. You start asking why with all of these things and building a little story. You still don't know the why yet, but you're getting closer. You're starting to see, okay, hang on. I'm seeing a pattern. This happens who, what, when, where, why, how it's happening in certain situations. You can see a pattern. Then you take that information and grab a piece of paper. I recommend that you keep a journal, neurocycle journal, whatever. Have something that, even if you do it on your phone, when you get to the, those first, when you get to, you've done step one and step two, write it down. But it's not journaling. It is put whatever words come into your mind from what you've just done. You can even draw a little circle and have, four little lines coming out and say emotions, behaviors, perspectives, and bodily sensations, and you can write out of those. The idea is to do a brain-mind dump. You want to just put down, even if it seems like a word is just so random and unrelated or a little phrase or even a drawing, whatever pops in your head, write it down because what's happening there is that you've opened up the networks of your mind-brain-body connection, which means you're going to tap into the non-conscious mind where that thought made of memories that stimulated this thought of I'm not good enough is stored. And you want to get access to that. You want to dig down to the roots. Think of a tree. It has roots, which is the source, which is the origin. So you're trying to get down to that level. So the writing brings order out of chaos, helps you start digging deeper, increases insight, and creates the ability to, to drive the neuroplasticity in the right direction. Then it looks chaotic. So you then look at what you've written, which is step four called the recheck. And as you're looking at what you've written, you try and make sense. What's the what's the antidote what this has happened what can i do how can i see this through another lens in other words you reconceptualize and make sense of it then you end the cycle because your brain mind body network works in cycles of tension release tension release and if you just stop at any of these points you're leaving an open-ended cycle and that can create a lot of other problems in terms of mixing up thoughts and making you actually feel worse so it's important to close the cycle and to work in small chunks of time we work best when we work in small chunks of time over over and work on that daily over time to make a change so an active reach is something simple like okay i this thing about i'm not good enough isn't really true it's coming from somewhere it's not who i am it's because of something so it could be a statement like that it could be a positive affirmation that you like it could be a like something like i am good enough i don't believe it yet but 
that's where I'm going. You know, that kind of thing. It could be you visualize a beautiful rainbow or a combination. So it's something that anchors you that you can then hang on to as you go into your day or the rest of your day, whatever time of the day it is, which then keeps you anchored. And you say, okay, I'm not going to let myself get stuck there. I'm working on this. I'm going to save my active reach to keep me, and then tomorrow I'll work on it again. And that's the idea, to, to build that over time into those cycles of 63 days that I was explaining at the beginning. If you just stop and do this once, it's gonna it's a Band-Aid. It's not going to work in the long term. So the, the process then is to identify these thoughts, like you mentioned, and go through the neurocycle, go through this, this checklist that you just summarized. And then I know you talked about what people can do in the moment, like if they're in a, a meeting or if they're feeling a certain way throughout the course of the day. But if somebody's trying to completely like transform how they see themselves or these thoughts, how long should they do this process for in order for them to, to see um, a drastic change? There's two, two parts to the question. The first thing is, let's say that you're in that meeting and, and, and you there's constantly a, maybe a couple of colleagues or a colleague that tends to activate this response where you just want to, uh, you, you can look, stay calmly, have your pen in your hand and run through this in your mind. They won't even know that you're doing it. So you can do it in like, once you know the system, you can run through it in 10 minutes. So you can say, okay, I'm going to react again. I can feel myself building up. I'm, my body's tensing. Um, I'm, I'm like, this is happening too often. Why is this happening? Well, there's something going on here. There's something in this person that activates and triggers me. I need to find out what it is. Um, and then you can't, maybe you can write in that meeting. So maybe you can, you, you know, you're writing down notes of the meeting, but actually you're just putting your thoughts on paper for that moment. Or if you don't have time, you can visualize in terms of like a movie. So imagine that you are flying above the scenario, you sitting there, this colleague sitting there, and you're videoing the situation using your iPhone. And that's a scenario we can all put ourselves into really easy. It's called the multiple perspective advantage, where we can look at this from multiple perspectives to get an advantage. As you do that, it stimulates a lot of genetic changes happening in the brain, and it collapses all this energy in a way that you can actually start getting to some kind of conclusion and management in your mind to, to help you not react or get upset or whatever, which news, wisdom, creativity, etc. And then you, so you can just visualize that. You can still be staring. You can still be smiling, whatever. And then um, you can say, okay, well, this is this person's obviously reacting to this. It's triggering me. This is fourth step now. I need to get through this meeting. This is really important. So I need to stay calm. So I'm going to go away from this and work on this tomorrow or tonight or whatever and start working on this daily. So you give yourself a little bit of a pep talk and say, this person, that isn't, and then you remind yourself, this person is showing up like this because they got issues. And that, whatever that is, we clashing. And so let me have a little bit of empathy. Let me recognize that's not who they are. And that shifts your, yourself into sort of a compassion state where you can be compassionate towards yourself and the other person, calms you down, and then your action would be, right, let me get into the meeting. Let me put that aside for now. Let me hear what they are saying. And then you could do something like repeat back. If I'm hearing you correctly, this is what you mean or this is what you're trying to say. Have I understood? Something like that where you show you've tuned into the person that's irritating you, upsetting you, whatever, that you've actually heard them. As soon as a person feels heard with a gentle tone, it calms them down too, and it may enable the rest of the meeting to go more effectively. But if this is a pattern, then I would definitely take the time to work on this over you know, 5 to 15 minutes a day, over 63 days at least, in order for you to get some sort of source identification of what's going on and how you can rewire so that doesn't activate you when you're in that situation. Do you think it's more important to focus on the thoughts themselves like staying on the i'm not good enough theme is it more important to focus on that thought and to try to understand like why you feel that way and then try to create new thought patterns around that or is it more important to focus on like the science and basis of where that thought comes from and maybe it might be some sort of trauma or some sort of relationship thing in the past and address that first before trying to reframe these thoughts Absolutely, the latter. What the research shows, and mine and others, and also clinical application I've practiced for years, um, is that you're not going to um, you're not going to have a long term change if you just try and reframe alone. So if you just say, "Okay, this is the bad thought. I shouldn't think this. This is what's making me feel bad." So that's the bad thought. You don't ever deconstruct it. You just leave it there, and then you say, "But this is what I should be thinking." Now it sounds like the right logic. And I'm not, and I say that get there eventually, but you, if you haven't 
weaken the network by going through the other steps. You, you, you're pretty much skipping step one, two, and three. You're not going to be that effective in the reframing. And so that's step four. You need to you need to get more steps in prior to that. And then this great that's pretty much cognitive behavior therapy where it's swapping one thought for another and saying this is bad and I'm going to do this and that kind of thing. It works only when you put it in the right level in terms of sustainable long term change. So use those techniques, but stick them in around step four and even step five because once you've done a reframing um, and you said this is you know this is not the truth, but I'm working towards the source. You then slowly over time can use little techniques to eventually, as you're finding the source and rewiring, because it never goes away. Whatever caused you to feel that identity issue of I'm not good enough has come from something that's gone on in your life, because how we show up has a because of. So we can constantly realize once I know the because of, I can then, I'm deconstructing and then reconstructing. Can't change what that person or persons or whatever situation, but you can change what it looks like inside of you and therefore how it plays out into your future. And that comes through a very intensive deconstruction, reconstruction process. And then as far as utilizing this same process for for kids, like parents who have kids, I know that like one of the hardest thing as a parent, I'm not a parent, but just from what I've heard from parents is that when their kids have these self-esteem, self-confidence issues or having trouble at school with the way they they feel about themselves, how can, like once parents have identified how they can self-regulate themselves and then use that process to regulate their own thought patterns and, and how they behave themselves and that sort of thing, how do they transfer that to kids when I think a lot of times, I'm just thinking, I think of myself as like a 12 year old or a 15 year old, I was hard, it was hard to get through to me. Like I, it was hard for me to listen. I, I just wanted kids to like me it didn't matter what my parents said to me so how can how can parents have um, utilize this this method in a way that's going to actually be effective well that's you know what you say there is it's a great question what you say there about you know not not wanting to just wanting to be accepted by your friends we know the different age groups that at, for example adolescents that sibling uh, not sibling friend relationship relationships are priority and it's it's friends siblings parents in that order and it's 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 different when the child's younger and so we have to always remember that that this is really important to get that order in our heads as parents i'm a parent of four my kids are all adults now and i've worked extensively in my practice with age groups as young as two and you can teach this to kids as young as two and three which is the reason why i bought out this most recent book which is how to help your child clean up their mental mess but doug this is a question that's asked often um, and I'm really glad you brought it up because if, if people often say, if you had to do one thing with a mental health crisis in children at the moment, what would you do? And it's kind of your question too, is, is to help the parent help themselves first because what you do is what they do. Your anxiety travels through to the child. The well-being of your child is very dependent on how you are manage your, your well-being. And it's an ongoing process. And we can't medicalize misery and pathologize childhood and all those things. We need to tell a child when we're feeling freaked out for something or another, it's okay to say, listen, I'm having a bad day. I yelled at you. I didn't mean to. And I know I said things that hurt you. And I want to, to help unpack that and see what I said that hurt you. But I'm like this at the moment. And it's made my whole body tense. And there's this and this going on. Obviously, lay, language and age appropriate. And I break that all down in the book on how to use language for like a three-year-old versus a five-year-old. And my previous books are adolescence and onwards. But you modeling is the primary number one thing. We have to help an educated parent, the caregiver, the teacher, and then that's what carries through to the child. And the reason being is, you, you know, if you remember as being a child, is we very, um, children are very authentic and they really respect and honor authenticity. They would much rather you freak out and own your freak out and say sorry and explain why. Otherwise, if you suppress it or hide it, the immediate thing for a child is, even an adult child will think, what have I done? you know, because of the nature of that parent-child relationship. So and then the, the authenticity aspect disappears if you don't explain why you're at. And then you've modeled. So the, the child gets the message, oh, okay, life is hard. Even my parents or whatever are battling. and But they're honest and they're saying sorry and they are working it out and they are owning how they feel and they're allowing themselves to feel those things and they're doing something. They're not staying in that yelly place or shouty place or angry place. They're doing something about it. So this whole principle um, that I applied in my practice and that I've done in my research and that I put into this latest book is 
let's work on ourselves as parents and then let's create a parallel system where we help our kids and teach them how to do it. So obviously those five steps, teaching a three-year-old is different to teaching an adult. So I've broken it down into very simple, into simple with lots of cartoons. We actually created a cartoon called Brainy um, and we've created a toy and we've got a coloring book and this little cartoon appears throughout the book and kids relate to cartoons, even adults do. And so how do you identify those four signals? You know, you can just point to Brainy and that kind of thing. So we've, I've given a lot of very simple ideas and tools to help teach those five steps to kids. One of the big things that really makes this very, very easy and achievable kind of thing is to designate an area in your house as a training ground. Think of it, if you go to the, you go to the gym to do gym, you get a yoga mat out to do yoga, you clean your teeth in, in, in the basin and sink, you cook on a stove. That idea of designated spaces for certain things is a very normal kind of concept. Apply this to mind. Mind is driving the brain. It's driving the body. It's your number one thing. Without mind, you're dead. So mind is messy mind, messy body, messy brain, messy life. So mind needs to be a priority in a way a child is brought up and in our adult lives. So therefore, helping having a place in your house, like just having a little chair in an area that you know if you feel sad, you go sit there and you demonstrate that. Let's say you walk in the door and you yell at your kids because you've had a bad day. Go sit down on that chair and say, oh gosh, I need to say sorry. I need to work this out. If your child throws a tantrum coming home from school or you pick them up from daycare and they're upset or they're a teenager and they're withdrawing in their room and they just don't want to talk, encouraging them to say, this is, you know, this is the safe space. No matter what you say or what you do, no judgment here, just support. I know this is not who you are. You're showing up like this because of, can I help you walk through that process? So that's a summary. Obviously, it's going to take time. to. It's going to take you nine weeks to just kind of get the system going in your house and in your home and in your lives. But your brain's changing regardless, and those things are never going away. Their life is not going away. So this just provides a lifestyle that you can adopt that is working within the parameters of the psychoneurobiological network and therefore creating sustainable change. Let's stick with an example of like a teenager, because I feel like when kids are teenagers, I think it becomes more challenging because now they're more influenced by their peer groups. They're older and they're developing more. Their, their brain's growing. They're, de they're developing some thoughts and values for themselves. And I just think it, it makes things a lot more different when you're a parent, as I've heard. And just being a kid myself, in, in my own experience at, at, um, when I was younger. So using the example uh, that we did for an, for an adult where kids are maybe they're not feeling confident with themselves. Maybe they're not feeling good enough. Maybe they are having some sort of self-image issue. Assuming the parent has already taken care of their own quote-unquote stuff, what's the process like from there if, if, if a kid comes home and is, is saying the things that I'm just you know, conveying to you, how does a parent effectively respond and then what, what are the daily things they should be doing with that kid to help them rebuild their self-confidence and self-esteem? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, I wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Just Thrive. I have covered the topic of gut health extensively on the show and why it is so important to have a healthy microbiome. 80 to 90% of Americans suffer from some type of gut issue and 70 to 80% of your immune system is in the gut. And while cleaning up your diet and managing your stress should be at the foundation of addressing your gut health, a probiotic can certainly be very beneficial. When buying a probiotic, you want to be sure that you get one that actually works and delivers on their promises. Research shows that 99.9% .9 of them die in your stomach acid before they reach your gut. That's where Just Thrive Probiotics stands out from the crowd. Their proprietary strains have been third-party clinically tested and proven to arrive 100% alive in your gut, unlike other probiotics that die on the way. But that's not all. Their probiotics have more clinical research than any other products on the market and are proven to work. So if you are tired of struggling with gut issues like gas, bloating, and indigestion, look no further than Just Thrive Probiotics. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off your first 90-day bottle of Just Thrive Probiotic. So visit JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code DOUG to get 20% off. Again, it's JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code DOUG to get 20% off. Now back to the show. So if uh, the, the first thing is to be in a state, as you've already mentioned, and as I've already mentioned, working on yourself. So that's an ongoing process. So if you've been demonstrating that, you can actually say to the, to, the, to the teenager, to the adolescent, 
you know, I've been using this neurocycle, it's really helping me. And hopefully the child notice changes because that's a big key thing. They see that you calm or you don't know if it's reactive or you're saying sorry more. They see changes in you as the parent. So really there's a there's buy-in. So that's really important is to them to see you. And then to offer them support and say, hey, I see that you are, you know, you're feeling you, you, you're different. There's there's definitely it's not who you are. There's definitely a change in you know your sleeping patterns or you know, you're not eating as much. There seems you seem to be worried about what you look like, and I and I'm and I'm really concerned and and I really care, and I, I don't understand, but I'm here for you. You know, that kind of non-judgmental thing is really important to approach it like that, and just say, can I help you? Maybe try this neurocycle and see if you, um, you know, if you if this helps you, if you are able to, um, I can walk you through this process and see if you like it. And so it's all very you know engage and. If they don't want to work with you, I've got an app with an adolescent. They love technology. They can then do it themselves. But you can explain what I had a lot of success with, with with adolescents and young kids is when you talk about the brain and the mind and you talk about the, empowering them to change their brain, that kind of language is very appealing. That plus the unconditional support. One of the a lot of surveys have been done on what an adolescent or teenager wants. And one of the main things, and it's also applies to a younger child, Applies to humans, but it's very interesting that it's very strongly worded with students, yes, teenagers, is that they want to be heard. And if you can convey that you are ready to listen, I want to hear you, I'm not going to judge you, I'm not going to tell you don't do that, I'm going to hear you. I've seen, I noticed, I hear, I'm here. And then let's say that, take it quite specifically, a person's, you notice the identity is the example. So let's say that it's a teenage daughter, a teenage girl, whatever. And she is scrolling a lot on social media and you notice that she's not eating as much, losing a lot of weight, a lot of body image issues, which is very dominant at the moment. It's a big issue going on with you know, TikTok and everything. The thing is you could that, that you the thing to say is to explain to them, you know, how the brain works is whatever you think about the most grows. And there's nothing wrong with social media, but how you manage social media is really important. So if you spend hours, if you're spending a lot of time every day looking at that person's supposedly ideal body weight and believing that if you don't look like that, you're not good enough and that your identity it's a distortion that's building in your brain. It's actually wiring in your brain. And it's kind of like a lens that you're looking at everything about yourself, literally like I'm holding up my hands. You're seeing that. And you can explain these kinds of things to a teenager. Just what I did in my practice, what I'd help in family therapy, and what I've put into my materials. That kind of conversation makes sense. When you explain what's happening, the science, you appeal to logic, you compassion, understanding, hearing, logic, then they start responding really well and say, okay, well, let's Let's see if we can maybe shift that tree to get a bit more perspective because is that really the truth? So let's unpack that. Do you have to look like that? And then you can start working through the neurocycle and guide them in a facilitative way. You can't fix your child. You can't understand their experience because it's their unique experience. Even as a parent, um, you may know your child, but you still can never totally understand what they're going through. So what may seem to you like, ah, oh, that's just crazy. They're just being too much time on social media. They're just being difficult. That's not really their truth. That's your ver- version of the truth, and that would push them away. But if you say, look, hey, I see this, and I see that, you, that you're different, is it maybe because, you know, you've got this wiry network that's maybe blocking you in seeing the truth? Can we maybe talk this through? Can we talk about the dangers of and, and you can give an example in your own life, you know, link it back. I once focused on this or that, or I got stuck with something. So it's that kind of back and forth within that framework that works really well. I feel like it's so hard to get through to to teenagers. And I feel like that all what you said, I, I think sounds very great. And I'm, obviously I'm sure that it, that it works. I'm just putting myself in, in those shoes. And like, I, I, I struggle with a lot of that stuff as a kid. And that when my parents would, would when people would, would come to me and, and say things that were uplifting to me, I didn't, I didn't believe it because my self-esteem was low and my environment like didn't reflect that. Meaning, like if somebody was like, "Yeah, you are, you are liked," and I, you know, I've been there and understand what you're going through and it's hard and blah blah blah, I would still see like kids not liking me or me trying to fit in or not having any luck with with girls when I was younger and be like, "Well, even though somebody's saying these things to me, well, the reality is like." I'm st- there, there must be something wrong with me. If somebody is going through something like that and they're at a at this, they're getting some resistance where what you just said maybe isn't getting through to this kid. This kid is still saying, like, listen, like, I understand what you're saying. I love you. 
I'm still having trouble though. Kids don't like me. Like, I don't feel good about myself. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, what are some steps that this, these parents can take to help them help these kids feel better about themselves, even though the environment that they're in most of the time at school might not be helping them, you know, feel better? So, yeah, brilliant question. What's the, one of the big things with that, with the, literally the first step of the neurocycle is to let a person get their feelings out. And you may have to hang around that for a while. So it's validating, hey, I, I want to hear what you're telling me. And it's not coming in with an immediate quip of when they say, I've, all the things you've just said, I don't feel accepted. I'm still, you know, they, they, they don't like me. They don't want me around. I feel lonely. I'm, I hate this. You want them to get that out and you just want to keep quiet and listen and listen as long as they need to be listened to so that first step you may hang around that gather awareness which is just letting them get it out and you just sitting there and, and with compassion and no judgment the way you look at your child your adolescent your young child whatever age they are it's like an adult that genuine I care I'm tuning in I'm not judging I don't know it all it's your experience I don't understand it but I'm here to hear you if you need to cry for the next hour if you need to just tell me all these terrible things that you feel like you want to do and how you're feeling I'm listening and that's very important because that builds the trust that then leads them to now what do I do they just need to get that out and I think Doug what's really relevant to the question you've raised is that we have got to be, and I'm so glad you raised this question, we've got to be very careful when we get to step four. Step four is where we start, hey, reframing, and we don't want to come in with that too quickly. We want them to be able to feel empowered, to be able to say what they need to say, and to feel safe enough to get all of this out, even if it sounds scary for you as a parent. I mean, they may even say, I feel suicidal, I don't want to live anymore. We need them to be able to say it, because when it's out and they tell their story, that's when we can start giving a change. It's the minute a person starts speaking about it in a safe space, there's a, a shift that happens where they can start to feel over time more empowered. And that may take a few days or weeks or, you know, that's where the therapy support is important as well. And, you know, getting support for you as a parent so that you don't, and working on yourself, that doesn't always have to be therapy, but having someone you can talk to, making sure that you, you know, if you get very activated by your child's statements, that you can practice with, Use it. Obviously, I'm going to say the neurocycle because it's how you change your networks to save, to practice. If my, if my, if I hear these words come out of my child's mouth, that I don't want to stop it or discipline it or change it or fix it, that I let them get it out and learn how to keep that, that almost stoic kind of, you know, it's okay, let's get it out. I'm going to stay calm. I'm going to cry with you. That kind of thing. And that that takes practice, but it gets through, and it and it, it pretty much works all the time once you've practiced knowing how to keep quiet for as long as you can. And they will then turn around, <clears throat> excuse me, and ask you the questions. What do I do? And that's when they're ready for you to step in and help with the reframing. And even there, you've got to be so careful of the words you use. It's never you are or do this. It's more one of, should we try this? Maybe this will work. I've kind of tried this once and that sort of helped me. Do you want to try this? So that sort of thing. I feel like um, people in, in general, a lot of times can be detached, more detached emotionally given social media and technology where it can be hard to um to tap into what's going on you know beneath the surface sometimes and specific especially with kids that aren't maybe used to talking about their emotions they don't know how to it's uncomfortable they might feel judged in a sense of judgment and shame and a lot of kids their their main mode of communication with their peers is through apps on social media and technology and, and with that said have you I mean, you're a parent, you have kids, right? Have you found anything that's been effective in your own personal experience, your own personal life to getting your kids to open up emotionally um, about something that they might not want to initially? Because I think like listening to them, that's that's obviously it's super important. And I'm really glad that you brought that up. But getting, the, I think the hardest part is getting them to open up in the first place. So Yes, that's the hard, that's the challenge. And that's not going to happen in one conversation, Doug. That's the lifestyle. And that's why 
we want to start this from young. And, you know, my kids, fortunately, I, mean, I did a lot of stuff wrong and obviously I've come with my own baggage because no one's excluded. Everyone's a mess. I mean, that's bottom line. And you're going to mess up your kids regardless. So we have to accept messy parenting and we have to take ownership. And that's the approach that we, my husband and I have had with our kids. And obviously, as a parent and as a therapist for years working in this in this area, you you um, it's not going to happen overnight. You have to build this in as a as and not give up. So you might try ten times, twenty times for two weeks, but eventually, are you consistently saying, "I'm here for you. I'm not going to judge you for the times. Tell me the times that I." That's a big key factor in getting them to open up. Is saying, "Hey, I, I've hurt you. I know these things I've done that that are that have hurt you." Can you share this with me so that we can fix those that I can hear? And then as a parent, don't get defensive. When they tell you, mom, when you said this at this time, and it may throw you completely because you may not have thought that that was anything that you even did wrong, but that's the impact. By you hearing them in that way and you taking ownership and you trying to rebuild, the, that creates deep, meaningful collaboration. And then they feel safer and safer to be able to share those those things with you. So it's a time thing. And that's why... Doug, one of the main reasons that I've written the book currently for two to 10-year-olds, if you can teach, start giving a child the tools to tell their story from as young as possible and you can start modeling, you're setting them up then for adolescence. So I'm approaching this from both sides. You've got a young child or you're not a parent yet, you can start building these routines into your life and now as, as a parent, pre-parent and young parent and so on. And then if you really have kids, never too late. You can, even if your kids are adults and your relationships are ruined, you can always try to rebuild your relationships. So it's coming at it from, from both sides of the coin and giving yourself the time. It might take you a full nine weeks before your child listens to you. But if you persisting in that compassion, kind, non-judgmental, non-judgmental ways, eventually that hard, outer, protective layer that they built to cope will start cracking because they want to be heard. They're desperate. To have that, you you know yourself what it's like as a teenager. You you just want someone to help you, and very often the you know the people you want that support from is your dearest loved ones. You know, so it it, it gets there. It's persistence. It's pushing through, and it's hard. So we talked about um, the steps for an adult to um, rewire and break free from toxic thoughts. We've we've touched on now what parents can do with kids if they're ha- if these kids are having toxic thoughts or having a, some sort of negative view of themselves and like the initial steps, I guess, to, to help them get through this. Obviously, this is this can be take years or months, right, for, for certain people, just depending upon the situation. Obviously, kids' brains and adult brains are very different, right, as far as development goes, as far as like, so I'm, I'm guessing size and stuff. Um, how does the time frame apply to kids as far as trying to get a kid to learn a new habit, learn a new behavior, learn a new thought pattern. I mean, is it is it the same as an adult? Is there is there a variation to that? What are your thoughts on that? Very good. I did a whole chapter on that in the book, by the way, and how to do the time frame with your children so you still create sustainable habits. Children learn this to learn these kinds of things quicker than adults, number one. They respond to big words like brain and neurocycle very quickly. So that's the, on a very positive side. They're also not trying to unlearn bad as many bad habits as we have as adults. So it's actually easier to get a child into this uh, the, this, uh, this framework um, almost more easily than it is to get an adult into it. Um, so the brain is developing and the brain is changing, hence even more reason that we need to give our kids the tools to facilitate and, dar- and drive that change. Um, so in terms of the time frame, we still want to work within the same time frame. But when you've got a child who's tired and they've come home from school, you're not going to get them to, okay, I've got to sit down and do my 15 minutes or my five minutes. You you need to go with the flow and be as flexible as possible. So you're going to keep it as a broad framework, knowing that it's if, this is a, if there's certain patterns that are very established, the more established the pattern, generally the bigger the problem because they a, 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 you know, the more complex, like, and they're talking about behavioral patterns that are complex, that they're showing up with maybe a lot of bedwetting or nightmares or persistent um, you know, learning problems at school and whatever, a combination of, of, of different pretty long things that have been going on for a while that are fairly disruptive. It could be that that's, you know, that's a fairly big issue that, that you're dealing with. So you know, to, to know, to bear in mind that this nine-week thing is our guide, but a child may only manage to just sit with you for a few minutes and just do 
if the three of those four signals. So then that's okay. You just, you know, make a note somewhere you're mentally that, okay, we'll pick this up when you're ready. You don't want to push and shove and you're going to teach it also proactively. So do it in the good times as well. So do it in a, in, in a good way. I mean, in, in a, in a, in a way that models you, you teach the system so they watch you. So even if they don't touch it and the other side is you can play with this with, um, Fun things. So, like, for example, if they, um, if there is a great experience that you've had as a family or something, you could and and you talk about that and it makes you feel happy and stuff. You can say, okay, let's quickly learn the neurocycle on focusing and on building this good thing bigger. So we, the good stuff, we want to grow bigger, and you can use the same five steps. And the bad stuff, we want to detox and reconstruct. We want to deconstruct and reconstruct. So you can practice. It's easier to, if, like if you've had a kids come home from a birthday party and they've, or they've had a great fun you know, holiday. So you can talk around and say, how did that holiday make you feel? And whatever. And you can go through the steps with something that's fun and quick and easy. So they get into that rhythm. So when the need is there for doing it in the, the, the harder stuff, they, they know the rhythm and they can then work with you on how they feel. Go with the flow. Never force anything. Make it very happy and accessible. And that's why I often say to people with younger children, designate an area in your home, like maybe paint a wall with chalk paint so that and have a good toy box there with um, art supplies and paper and chalk. And if you get the, if you get the book of the brainy toy and get other toys and because um, kids, young kids will very often will tell you if you give them a toy, they'll actually how they feel, they'll act on the on the toy, which gives you a point of contact. But by having this place that they are involved in creating. That's a safe space. Let them experience that safety, so that when that they, over time, as they learn and get into the rhythm, you know they they will they'll flow with it. But never push it. And some days you're going to have one minute of focus and you lost. Other days they're going to get so into it that you're going to spend you know maybe sometimes forty five minutes. So go with the flow. I think a an equal fear that parallels a a, a, a kid who has a. I think an equal fear of a parent that parallels a kid having a negative self-image or like a negative view on themselves, negative thoughts, is a kid that continues to struggle and struggle and struggle and, and is stressed out or maybe ends up falling into some sort of negative situation that they've gotten themselves, they, they've gotten themselves into to deal with life's hardships to deal with life's challenges and i think i think i think parents they they want they want to figure out like how can i how can i do the best that i can to make my kids as 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 mentally resilient as possible so that when they go through life that they're they're able to kind of dance through it in a way that they they know that the hardships there but they make the right choices to not you know destroy their life right um, what are some, again, using the same example as a, I guess, as a teenager, just because, um, I know that from based on people who have come to me, I know that, that that's the main, the main issue they have with their kids. A lot of times in the teenage years, um, or when they're young adults. So using that same example, what are some, you know, daily things that parents could do with their kids? What are some, uh, maybe activities they can do as they're raising their kids or whatever the examples you have are that can help them uh, ensure that their kids are going to be as mentally resilient as possible. Resilience is something that's naturally in the human network. So the mind, brain, body network, it's there. What we need to do is unmask and then grow it. So the uh, that that is all linked to mind management so mind is driving how you function so we've got to then help a child to learn to understand their mind and the way you understand your mind is by understanding how how to analyze how i am in the moment so you can do it with a happy situation first which is makes it easier like if you just had that birthday party whatever example holiday is to actually tell a child okay let's let's talk about how we are showing up and not just feelings because feelings is only one of four things people get stuck on feelings and don't go beyond that we can't just get stuck on feelings so it's training a child to go into what i call the multiple perspective advantage i mentioned that earlier where you're training a child to self-regulate which is the key active ingredient of mind management and self-regulate initially it's very co-regulated as they're younger and then in periods of your life you're going to co-regulate depending if it's like they get knocked and something big happens there's a bit of co-regulation with the goal to going towards self-regulation 
And so the multiple perspective advantage is a great way of starting that. And that's just this ability that we have is to stand back and observe ourselves and practice that. You can get two chairs. I would do this with, with my young and adult patients and adolescents is get two chairs and sit on one chair and tell how you feel and how that feels in your body, you know, go through those four signals, even to tell your story, whatever, and then go in the other chair. And now you are also, it's also you, but now that's your wise mind talking to the messy mind. So that's the messy mind talking about how they feel. And then it's the wise mind analyzing and repeating back to them what they're doing. So it's role play. Um, and, and as you, the more, it's a skill you're developing. And as you develop this ability to stand back and observe, you then kick in if a child's, you know, using AI, if a child's on social media, they can, they can learn to, if someone says something to them, which is going to happen, um, the struggles of life, you have become a safety net parent versus a helicopter parent because you've actually taught them to first, you've trained the skill in them of being observant and self-regulating and recognizing, okay, when I'm, I notice this is something wrong, so therefore I need to stop, I need to pause, I need to actually stop whatever I'm doing until I've worked out what's going on, get some help, talk to a parent, whatever. That is a skill you can develop and that then builds resilience. And every time a child goes through a situation, young or old, young, young, old, sorry, young teenager, adolescent, I'm going into adulthood, each time they go through an experience, each time we go through an experience, we are adding a level of resilience. We are unmasking another layer of resilience. And if this is, it's a steady forward progression. So that is a, it's the time thing again. It's the work within the framework. It's, does, does that kind of help a little bit in terms of guiding? And start with yourself again. Practice as often as you can. If you are anything, did that Whenever, just, oh gosh, I feel so irritated. I feel so tired today. I woke up tired because of you modeling that classic thing we came back to is giving your child the tools as well. They're learning it from you and then they learn to self-regulate. When you say sorry, you're self-regulating. You're teaching them to look at their impact on others, building empathy, etc. How do you, if a parent's listening to this, how do they avoid trying to fix a situation? If a parent's listening to this, how do they avoid trying to fix a situation? Like if a kid comes home, and they, let's just say they got a D on a test or something like that in school. And they're like, you know, my teacher did this or I didn't get enough time or blah, blah. You know, they, they start to come up with excuses. And because I think parents want to always give their kids the benefit of the doubt and see the best in them, sometimes, again, I'm not a parent. I've just only heard through um, speaking with a lot of parents in, in my profession that, you know, sometimes I've heard parents go and, and talk to the want to go to talk to the teacher and 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 say like you know what happened why blah 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 right and obviously that can present its own set of problems because of what you're showing how that what's what that that message is being relayed to the to the kid and then on the other extreme you have the parents sometimes where they're like I can't believe you got a D you can do better than that you suck like I can't believe this blah 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 you're not going to do this you're not going to do that what's yeah <laughs> how does um again i'm not a parent so i can only i i guess i don't have as much i don't have as much credibility as somebody who is and and so i'm what i'm asking is if somebody's listening to this and they want to again while it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be perfect and every situation is going to be different is there any kind of general framework you would recommend to deal with a situation like i just described in a way that's going to help a kid feel empowered, but also accountable. So that's going through from the self-regulation process. So they, it's really important that we don't bubble wrap and helicopter parents, which is where you are hovering. And as soon as you see any discomfort, you're going to remove the discomfort. We need the discomfort, like the oyster concept of this, how the pearl forms. We need to not pathologize childhood. We've got to get out of this mentality of the biomedical model, which is, if you see your child do X, Y, or have X, Y, and Z emotions, you've got to get to a doctor and get a label and there's something wrong with their brain or something wrong with them. We need to just accept that life is messy and we need to get that message through to our kids that life is messy. And let's analyze this in a very curious and very logical way and see what the best way forward is. And that's safety net parenting. And if you think of a safety net acrobats, they climb up the side, they fly all over the place and there's a safety net at the bottom if they fall we've got to let our kids climb and fall and we're there when they fall but the helicopters you're hovering constantly you're doing everything for them and bubble wrap that teaches them no resilience no skills it's entitlement it breeds narcissism 
Um, it messes with identity. It leads to a lot of sort of abuse of other people, you know, that, that kind of thing. And that's not healthy for a child, for anyone. And people suffer from that kind of thing. So often people think they're doing the right thing for their child. To protect them, you have to know how to be a safety net parent, which is stand back and let them work this thing out together and say, okay, if I go to the teacher to talk to them about this, we need to talk about the consequences of that. Oh, that's the best approach. What are the pros and the cons? So you're teaching them to analyze. You know, so it's not just, okay, I'm going to go and talk to that teacher and I'm going to you know, get that child or I'm going to talk to that parent, which is a nap. Listen, I'm a parent. When my kids were bullied and they've all had a chance of being, everyone kind of have had experiences with something that they've been hurt. I wanted to dive in and fix it. And I had to hold back even all the stuff that I know. When you're a parent and you're in that emotional state, the first thing you want to do is let me remove the problem and let me not have any pain for that child and take all that pain away. You can't do that. You have to work it through with them and and, and, and analyze. Let them, let them see how they are experiencing that and let them look at okay, what would the possible solutions be. And when they say, well, what could I do? I say, well, here are some options. These are the consequences of the options. And that's very good because then they see the change, they see the options and the probable consequences. And then they, there's a decision making, a joint decision making, and that's empowering. Then you're teaching them to analyze. It's like free unstructured play. We don't have enough of that in this day and age. Children are hardly having unstructured play. It's all very helicopter parent supervised play. And that's not good. Kids need hours every day just to go and be out there with their friends. And if they're having a fight, not intervene. Let them sort it out. You know, obviously safety measures are put in place and you're not going to just let them roam free. But they do need to have unstructured play to be able to explore and solve and deal with problems. And if they keep running to you for every fight or every argument with a sibling, they're not learning the skills. You stand back and they'll come to you, but you stand back and say, well, what do you think we should do? What is going on here? That is really important. So giving them the power to try to make their own decisions and their, their own choices, because I think... And facilitating. So you're not fixing, you're facilitating. That's what I'm just saying. You're facilitating a process. Because I think intuitively, these I mean, kids know like, what the best approach is, right? Kids know that they're not going to go in, that it's probably not the best idea to go and scream at their teacher, right? Or yell at their teacher, right? Kids know that the best approach is a lot of times not to, it's not to say anything, right? They, they just don't know. I think they just don't know what to do or how to say it. So if I'm understanding correctly, so that way I can just, we can just put a bow on, on this part that if somebody comes home, they got a D on the test, the best thing that, that a parent can do is acknowledge it and then maybe give, um, you know, talk about, ask them, ask their kid what they think the best solutions are, or maybe the, the parent identify three different solutions. Like, Hey, like, here's a, here's a solution. Go in. You could talk to your, talk to your teacher about it, understand what went wrong, blah, 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 blah. We could go in together and talk, but I'll let you do the talking. I'll just be there to support you. Or, you know, the, the third option maybe could be something like, a, a poor choice so that they, they can understand the difference between the two and be like, all right, or you can do nothing and see where that goes. And then like helping them unpack like where each of those decisions might lead them. Is that what you're getting at? Yes. So you, and you do that and make sure you do it in the correct sequence so that you get the brain networks activated. So the actual change will happen. Otherwise it's a bunch of words you're showing at the kids, throwing at the kids and it's very messy and disorganized and you're not going to have decent um, actual sustainable change in the child's life. So you, you want to equip them in an organized way. So run through this. They come home with a D. Then say, okay, let's. how does it make you feel? You know, talk about, you know, go, how does it make you feel in your body? What do you think happened? You know, how is it, how are you reacting? What do you, ask them the questions, let them answer. Why do you think it's happened? Let's, you know, let's write all this down. Let's, okay, now we go to the recheck where we say, okay, what are the potential ways that we could solve this problem? Is this a, um, what do you use? and draw on them and then prompt with like suggestions, but let them try and you know give a suggestion, but let them speak if they don't give them other options until they choose. So the things that you were saying that's great around the recheck phase and it's okay, what's our action? Let's get let's do something. What are we gonna actually do? Is it a situation of get you an extra tutor, I spend more time with you studying, whatever. Whatever the you get a solution, write it down. Make a plan, and and in that act of that fifth step, the solution grows out of the previous four steps. But the action is written down. Make it actionable. We're going to do this, and then you do it. Commit to doing it, and start the process. And I would imagine that it's not just important to to do what we just talked about, but it's to repeat that 
And then just like even in a different situation where maybe they get into some sort of altercation at school or they get into a fight with a sibling or whatever, it's to, again, like have the parent self-regulate help their kids, you know, and again, this is all kind of com comes together because now, you know, assuming you've also helped your kids self-regulate with, you know, some of the stuff that we've, we've talked about, um, and, and then getting them to a place where they can identify some of these solutions and then understand the pros and cons, um, of each of them. And then like applying that to, again, these different situations that might come up throughout their childhood. Absolutely. It is. It's, it's not a one-off thing. This is like if you're going to train to become a pro athlete, you're putting in lots of effort. This is the same thing. We're becoming athletes in our mind, you know, mind athletes. We're doing the mind training, and that's kind of not done as a very deliberate – we're doing it with our kids, but we need to do it in a more deliberate and organized way. Otherwise, we're going to land up getting them labeled and medicated, which is also not the solution. So, yeah, exactly what you said there. Dr. Leaf, thank you so much for coming back on the show. If people want to connect with you, if they want to get a copy of um, your latest book, where's the best place to do that? Books, wherever books are sold, the latest books called How to Help Your Child Clean Up the Mental Mess. My social media handle is Dr. Caroline Leaf. You can get everywhere from there. I have an app called the NeuroCycle app, which is for adolescents and up. If you put in a parent thing in there, then you can also access the book there. Our web page is drleaf.com and I have a podcast called Cleaning Up the Mental Mess where we talk about these things as well. So, And you'll be a guest on there soon so people can hear you on my show. Thank you so much for that and for sharing all of your wisdom on the show. I will be sure to include the links to um, your stuff in the show notes and um, thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much. I, you asked really great questions and very practical. I love them. It was really great. Thank you. Thanks again. I think the audience is going to enjoy this one. <laughs> 